0: 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3,
1: 2. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello, once again. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Space Nuts podcast, episode 192. I think I can't keep count. Anyway, um, my name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and with me as always, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. <laughs> um, we're um, we're actually with hundred episode one hundred and ninety
0: two. We're approaching my age in um, in episodes numbers, right, no, which well, is we're,
1: we're halfway but... there. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Excellent. Sorry um, but thank you very much, Andrew. It's always good to talk, yeah, uh, no matter workout. what episode we're on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, today, we are uh, going to reveal the title of my book. Oh, yes. And that's all we're going uh, to do. Um, yeah, well, um, yeah, <laughs> No, I'll explain it later. Um, it, it was a complicated process, and I, I fear that I didn't actually give people enough information to come up with uh, an angle that... That worked, but that's that's on me. But uh, a few answers that came through on potential titles sort of got me my brain working, and uh, I finally came up with something that my wife approves of. So that 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 is it. That's got to be it. Uh, We're also going to talk about the biggest explosion ever seen in the universe, the first extraterrestrial protein found in a meteorite. Uh, Earth has a mini moon. And we've got a couple of questions to answer. One, about uh, what damage your eyes might suffer if you watched a catastrophic event in space. I mean, you, they, they say don't look at, a, um, look at the sun through a telescope, duh. Uh, but what about something else? And uh, someone else is wondering out about, well, not one thing, a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, I think he was sitting on the beach in Byron Bay contemplating and all this stuff just came out of his brain. So he sent us a note. We'll, we'll deal with it for you, Frank. We will answer every single question. Actually, we should probably do episode 193, just based on what Fred wants <laughs> to know. But we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, but let's start off, Fred, with the biggest explosion ever seen in the universe. When did this happen?
0: Um, quite a while ago, uh, uh, probably. <laughs> Hang on I while thought. I bring my Well, I bring my notes up. Here we are. Um, uh, Well, uh, for a start, uh, the event we're looking at took place uh, in a cluster of galaxies, which is 390 million light years away. So that means that what we see, uh, which is itself a relic, uh, what we see um, actually set off on its journey 390 million years ago before you and I were born. So um, it is something that's happened a long way off and a long time ago, but as you said, it's the biggest explosion ever detected and certainly um, uh, ranks with, um, you know, the the, the sort of supernovae things that we see. Uh, We see supernovae exploding stars. This was something much bigger than that, uh, which came from the bowels of a black hole in the centre of the dominant galaxy in the Ophiuchus Cluster. Uh, And in fact, the cavity that this explosion left in the gas of the of the uh, galaxy cluster was big enough to hold 15 of our milky way galaxies wow so it, it was a so super
1: it, knowing the um, uh, international astronomical union it's probably been been called the super duper nova uh, at
0: least that so it yeah. might even be super du- duper hypernova <laughs> Um, it's, certainly, uh, uh, it's certainly big. And uh, it's an interesting story how astronomers have actually come to this conclusion because um, it had a bit of a false start. Uh, back in 2016, astronomers uh, using the Chandra X-ray observatory, that's a NASA spacecraft uh, of a similar class to the Hubble telescope, but it's the sort of X-ray equivalent, of the Hubble, the Hubble looks at the universe in visible light and ultraviolet light. Um, Chandra looks in X-rays, short wavelength radiation, uh, and it was the X-ray observatory uh, that was used by a group of astronomers to check out this galaxy cluster. And what they found, and uh, X-rays look at highly energetic gas in clusters, so. You're kind of looking at um, a very a, a something very energetic to start with, but they saw that there was a, a sort of curvature in um, in well, I suppose you could call it a curved edge. Uh, to the to to one of the gas clouds they were looking at, and when you see a cur- you know it, it, when you see something curved like that in space, and we see these commonly in what we call supernova remnants, um, not super hyperduper nova remnants, but okay. normal supernova remnants, where they 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 basically carve out a, a cavity within the interstellar medium, the medium the, the the gas uh, surrounds them. So what these guys saw was a, a curved thing that looked as though it was part of a cavity but they did a quick calculation to, to show what kind of energy would have been needed for something to explode to produce a curvature of that size and all fell about laughing because it was far too big so they they actually ruled out an eruption because the amount of energy would have would have been so big um there the story rested until more recently, and now the uh, the, the the work that's come from uh, from the um, Chandra Observatory has been supplemented. I think there's another X-ray telescope involved as well, uh, but uh, actually it might not have been. Um, Yes, yes, it was actually there was a there's one of the European spacecraft that was used as well to to make these observations. So so uh, the space observations uh, were recently supplemented by um, essentially ground based radio telescope observations uh, made in India and in Australia, and that that's where the the story comes. Uh, really rather close to home because um, earlier this week, I was actually at the headquarters of the observatory, uh, the Australian observatory that, that was used to make these observations. It's an instrument called the Murchison Widefield Array. It's at the Murchison Radio Astronomy Observatory, which is in Western Australia, a very, very radio quiet part of the country. The Murchison Widefield Array is an instrument consisting of about 4,000 antennas, uh, not very big ones, uh, things that sit still on the ground because you steer it electronically. Uh, That telescope, though, is well suited to, you know, wide angle survey work. And it was used alongside uh, the one in India to confirm that when you look at the radio radiation, there has been an explosion of the kind that will be needed to carve out this uh, very large cavity in the gas of the Ophiuchus cluster. Mm-hmm. There's a lovely quote actually from one of the one of the scientists, Maxim uh, Markovich, who's actually at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center. He he said, the radio data fit inside the X-rays like a hand in a glove, uh, which is very nice, you know, confirmation and the um basically uh, he he went on to say this is the clincher that tells us an eruption of unprecedented size occurred here so uh, what we're seeing now is the, the aftermath of that um that explosion is thought to to be over or the outburst from the black hole that produced it is thought to be over uh, and um you know, given that there's, there's no sign of activity uh, around from the, the black hole in the, the center of the galaxy, in the center of the cluster. Uh, and so um, it's a really nice example of what you can learn by having multi-wavelength observations. In fact, in uh, the press release I've read, there's a quote from a person I was speaking to uh, on Monday at the Murchison Murchison Widefield Array headquarters. This is Melanie Johnson-Hollett, who's the director of that facility. She says, as is often the case in astrophysics, we really need multi-wavelength observations to truly understand the physical processes at work. Mm. Um, Having... The combined information from X-ray and radio telescopes has revealed this extraordinary source, but more data will be needed to answer the many remaining questions the object poses. And Do, uh, do we know what
1: exactly it might have been?
0: I, th- I think the, um, the speculation is that there is a very large, and I don't know the details of the black hole, but it's a supermassive black hole, right. which is... In the cluster of galaxies, and it is almost certainly a you know a, a gobbling up type event involving that black hole that then produced jets of material uh, that in turn pushed this cavity out into the interstellar medium. So, uh, yeah, something pretty significant coming from a black hole.
1: Bringing it back down to Earth, I, I can see in the story that they suggested that this particular explosion, if you want to sort of miniaturize it into something we can get our heads around was much the same as the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens, which basically blew out the side of the mountain and, and was lateral rather than straight up as um, yeah. as volcanoes do. So that's how they're describing this.
0: Yes, yeah, so it's a nice analogue that, uh, you know, you, <laughs> it's, it's something um, really that's uh, uh, more, far more energetic than you would imagine would be possible. I remember that Mount St. Helens mm, activity very well.
1: Yeah, and that was um, was horrible because so many people were there to watch it and witness it, thinking they yep. were at a safe distance. But yeah, yep. the side of the mountain sort of slid away, and the eruption burst out across the ground, which was uh, horrifying. Um, and, and the and the devastation was just unimaginable. It was one of those uh, yeah. freaks of nature th- situations, as was this, I suppose. Uh, yeah, but, that's right. Uh, yeah, there may be more to learn, but um, I'm glad it's all calmed down. I'm glad it was so far away. <laughs> even though
0: it's so far away that's right
1: Uh, you're listening to space nuts with andrew dunkley and fred watson let's take a break from the show and hear a word or two from our sponsor grammarly now i have to say i'm a big fan of grammarly uh, because i've been using it for a few years now very helpful for authors but uh, also really good for everyday life they've saved me on a few occasions Uh, particularly with spelling, but also with a few issues that uh, didn't quite make sense. Uh, It's built by linguists and language lovers, and uh, Grammarly's writing app finds and corrects hundreds of complex writing errors so you don't have to do it yourself word by word, day by day. (laughs) You can uh, easily copy and paste any English text into Grammarly's online text editor or just install uh, Grammarly's free browser extension for Chrome, Safari, Firefox and quite a few others. Grammarly's algorithms flag potential issues in the text and suggest context-specific corrections for grammar, spelling and vocabulary Uh, Grammarly explains the reasoning behind each correction so you can make an informed decision about whether and how to correct an issue. Grammarly helps you write mistake-free Gmail, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and nearly anything else you write on the web. Uh, for you, the listener of Space Nuts, Grammarly is offering a free download of the Grammarly software. So if you'd like to download Grammarly today, go to getgrammarly.com spacenuts Space Nuts. Again, that's getgrammarly.com spacenuts Space Nuts to download Grammarly for free and let them know you came from us. Uh, I'll include the link in the show notes as well. And now, back to Space Nuts. And I feel fine. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, I just want to send a, a little bit of a thank you out to our patrons because uh, they've increased in number in the last week. We've had someone sign up for a um, an outstanding monthly contribution, which uh, is just wonderful. Um, and we've sent him a personal message of thanks. I, I don't know if he wants his name out there, so I won't embarrass him, but uh, I just... Want him to know that we are in eternally grateful for his uh, his gratitude. Uh, we're aiming to get 500 patrons. We're um, we're at 67 now, which is magnificent. 67 people who think we're worth a couple of bucks a month. Fred, I, um, I'm chuffed. I think I think that's lovely. I'm glad. <laughs> I'm <they're> astonished. En- <laughs> I'm glad they're enjoying the program and uh, and what we we have to offer albeit yeah, just a, a fraction of interest. But, no, um, on a you know, more serious note, it is it is wonderful that uh, you feel obliged to um, to put something back into uh, into our coffers, and, and we are uh, so so very thankful. So um, if you would like to become a patron, uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash space nuts. All the information you need to know is there. It's not mandatory, and we're not going to send the boys around if you don't. It's just... Um, it's, it's an option. And if you think uh, we are worthy, that's fine. If you don't, and that's most of you, that's fine too. <laughs> oh, that was terrible. Um, but, yeah, thank you very much for your support of, uh, of the Space Nuts podcast. Now, Fred, moving on to this rather interesting story. We've got a couple of things to knock off in this segment. Uh, this yep. is the discovery of the first ever protein found in a meteorite, uh, extraterrestrial protein. Uh, should that—that you know, that is the, the key word in this extraterrestrial. Now I know what some people might think. I'm sure some of the press went, "Oh, we found aliens," but I suspect it's something else.
0: <laughs> well, it—you it, know—it's uh, a pointer to aliens, I guess. It doesn't mean that this is—it's uh, it, not evidence of alien life of any kind, but it is one further step. In the notion that the complex molecules that build up, that make you know, make up living organisms. Uh, Uh, have their origins, may have their origins in space. Uh, It's an interesting story, and it's got a little bit of a parallel to what we were just talking about, Uh, the fact that something was observed a long time ago, and and it's more recently been followed up with other equipment to get a different answer. So uh, it comes about because of analyses of... Meteorites that are actually in museums. Uh, basically, um, there were there were two meteorites involved in this story. Uh, their names are not really important. They're ones that basically were you know found. I think one was found um, in the in the Middle East uh, somewhere. I'm actually just looking for their uh, for their names. But as I said, that that that's not the important bit. The important bit is that um, some years ago these meteorites were analysed and uh what was what was found were um the complex molecules they found um things like uh, ribose which is a type of sugar uh and it's found in RNA and amino acids these are these are the basically the building blocks of proteins so uh people knew that already these these uh, molecules had already been found in these meteorites but um what has now happened is that um, a new superconductor X ray source uh, has been used. It's a mass spectrometer, a thing that measures the mole- masses of molecules. This is new technology, Andrew, and that's kind of what's pushed this. Research further forward, and it actually, in fact, it's really interesting because the some of the authors of of this work are actually connected with the company that builds the equipment, rather than academic, uh, you know, an, an academic uh, university. Although I've got the, the paper in front of me, and it has uh, actually one, two, three authors, uh, and I think. Um, uh, only I think two of them are from uh, from uh, you know the, the commercial companies I might have that wrong And I, sh- I should check it more closely so don't write in if I'm wrong uh, but the bottom line is uh, <laughs> you, know uh, the they bottom... Will.
1: you know they yeah,
0: will <laughs> yeah. yeah the bottom line is that with this new, new equipment um, the uh, the complex molecules have revealed more details about their nature Um. There is a an independent comment um, from uh, an astronomer, basically here in Australia. Uh, he's a chemist astronomer. Ooh, sorry, might be a she. Yes, it is a she. I beg your pardon. Uh, uh, it's it's uh, the CSIRO uh, here in in Australia, and um, the quotation is in general they're taking a meteor that has been preserved by a museum and has been analysed previously, and they're modifying the techniques that they're using in order to be able to detect amino acid inside this meteor, but with a higher signal to noise ratio. That's that. This is the yardstick by which we, we judge all our measurements, whether they're astronomical or, uh, you know, bits and pieces of meteorites. It's all about the signal to noise ratio. Mm. And so... Um, What they found, what the team found, were an an amino acid called uh, glycine. And that came in with a stonking great signal that wasn't present in the earlier analysis. But they also found that this glycine had uh, other chemical elements attached to it, iron and lithium. And basically... uh, you know, it, it, almost in an echo of the of the incomplete cavity that we were talking about just now in Ophiuchus, um, what they found was something that completed the picture. They they realized that uh, this this glycine wasn't just an isolated amino acid; it was actually part of a protein, and uh, which they've given a name. It's hemolythin uh, is that is what they're calling it. Um, so the comment that hemo- hemolythin is actually s- similar to proteins we find here on Earth, but and this is the you know the clincher to all this, um, it's the ratio of deuterium to hydrogen, uh, that's heavy hydrogen to hydrogen, that is um, a ratio that is only found in long period comets. You don't find it in the terrestrial version uh-huh. of Um, Of these uh, um, uh, proteins, so this protein has got, uh, you know, the atoms within it are definitely from outer space, and so um, that, you know, that's as I said, it's the clincher.
1: So, so Um, bottom line, bottom line, it's a, it's a, it's a a, um, protein that's associated with what we refer to as a building block of life, and it's come from somewhere else.
0: That's. That's the bottom line, exactly.
1: Uh-huh. So, um, so, as they say, not proof of extraterrestrial creatures, but proof that the building blocks are out there. Yes, that's the right. Mm. Yeah, wow.
0: and it, and these are complex building blocks. They're, you know, pro- proteins, uh, as far as life on Earth is concerned, that, uh, um, life, life basically uh, always involves proteins, so it's a really interesting uh, discovery. The paper that has been written on this, the paper is entitled "Hemolithin, a, Meteori- a meteoritic protein containing iron and lithium." Um, I have read the abstract of that. I haven't read the paper, and it's pretty. It's you know, it's it's fairly complex stuff. Uh, my life science skills are. Uh, pretty basic, I have to say they're limited to stroking the cat, as you know um, that 's as much as I know about life sciences but, um, but you, you, when you get the drift of it from the abstract in the paper and, and that's the bottom line this this is all about the um, uh, you know, the the, the, uh, the isotopes that have been found and and that signature that tells you that this is extraterrestrial
1: wonderful, Wow. Fascinating. Well, you know, little bits and pieces of evidence are starting to build, Fred. It's only a
0: matter oh, they are of too. time.
1: Only yes, a matter of time. And we'll be here to tell you about it, even if it takes another 150 years. <laughs> I hope. Um, now well, while we're talking about meteorites let's move on to something that's not a meteorite but uh, I don't know, same same dog, different leg action I suppose and that's uh, Earth's mini-moon We've got a mini-moon at the moment We've <laughs> got a
0: mini-moon, that's right Actually you're right, that's a good segue because um, this is, you know, it's a small asteroid uh, and the, the, the boundary between large meteorites and small asteroids is a, uh, asteroids is a fairly fuzzy one. Uh, this is an object uh, which which is in the region of three metres in size, size of a vehicle, a car probably, um, which has been detected at the Catalina Sky Survey. So this is basically uh, the Catalina Sky Survey. They have telescopes in Arizona.
1: <laughs> They're not getting Sorry. sort of Tesla, is it? They might be getting confused. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's a really good point. That's on its way to Mars, though. It's not around, you know, a bit around the Earth. Um, yeah. Uh, so the Catalina Sky Survey has picked up this asteroid, which rejoices in the name of. Oh, I've lost its name. Uh, hang on. Let me find. Let me find the the note. It is called 3 that's the one. Yeah. Yes, exactly. 2020 CD3, a, a very faint object. It's 20th magnitude, which is, um, you know, as astronomers speak, for something very dim. Uh, it's moving, but the discovery, which was made only uh, a week or so ago, Andrew, this is really recent stuff. Uh, it is moving in an orbit around our own planet. Yeah. So it's actually a moon.
1: So it got captured, uh, obviously. It was passing by and went, oh, I need a rest. yeah
0: so what that was what happened put its feet up had a bit of a rest uh that's right so what you can do when you find something like this is uh, essentially analyze the orbit and look at the instabilities in it and the discoverers uh, are actually fairly clear that this thing has probably been only around for maybe three years or so it's Ah. it's 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 not a long-lived asteroid orbiting the Earth. It's just a, you know, it's a a temporary uh, visitor.
1: Um, And the the conversation went something like this: Mother Earth was asked by her son, the Moon, "Can we keep it, Mummy? Can we keep it?" And she said, (laughs) "No, because it ain't going to stay."
0: That's the bottom line. It ain't going to stay. In, maybe even in three months or so, it will have so gone.
1: Why will um, it go? I mean, is it because it's just too far out or is it gaining momentum? Is is that what's happening? Yes. Yeah, so it's
0: it's, it's the, you know, the, the orbital dance of an object like this around the Earth. So it's feeling the pull of the moon, it's feeling the pull of the Earth and it's feeling the pull of the sun. And those things are all... Uh, they all come into play as it moves around the Earth uh, to give it a sort of fairly bumpy ride. And I guess what will happen in three or four months or so, maybe a bit longer, uh, is that it will come to a point where the gravitational attraction of the sun uh, is stronger than the gravitational attraction of the Earth. Uh, and basically, it will leave the Earth's orbit. It will it will stop being bound to the Earth. Um, it's it, The. the When you've got an object like this, um, probably, you know, it's it's been captured uh, as the as it's bypassed the Earth. It's felt the pull of the Earth, and that's shifted it into an orbit around the Earth. But that's a fairly it's a tenuous thing. It's not you know, it's not a strong attraction binding it there. Mm. Uh, So it's always on the edge of drifting off somewhere else, and that that is what will
1: happen. So it'll just. Fling off, or will it be a sort of a ballet removal?
0: I think it will be more. Of a, it'll be more of a clunk, probably.
1: <laughs> no, I think, I think
0: I think ballet is quite a nice way to put it. It will, um, it will drift away, do a couple of pirouettes, uh, and then um, disappear uh, once again to be in orbit around the sun, which is kind of where it started from. It would have yeah. been a, a near Earth an Earth asteroid. Um, yeah it's so you know that um, that uh it, piece of research is is interesting it's not actually the first uh asteroid that we've seen that's done this another one uh, is um or was called well it still is called that 2006 rh120 uh it is uh, again an asteroid that was captured by the earth and Basically, uh, didn't hang around too long. So, this is the same sort of thing.
1: So, this has probably happened umpteen times, and we've just not really. Never. Th- them. Too small to far right. away. Yeah.
0: Exactly right. So, it's not, you know, it's a phenomenon that almost certainly is pretty routine for yeah. the Earth to pick up objects, hang on to them for a while, and then lose them. But most of them are just too small. And it's really only now that we've got the technology uh, to see them that we are actually finding these
1: things. You wait. Someone's going to come out and say, "Well, that's the reason we've had all these droughts and fires." That's what that it. It was the mini moon. That's what'll happen. Someone <laughs> yes. will say it. You watch. Um, well, you've just said it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just suggesting someone will say it. I'm not making that claim. Okay. No, I mean, um, enjoy it while you can. Uh, but yeah, that's it's right. pretty hard to see. Yeah, having to, two
0: moons is good.
1: Having two <laughs> moons is is pretty cool. It's about time. Yeah. You're listening to Space Nuts, Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. OK, we checked all four systems and with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, we, we keep bringing this up every week, but our YouTube numbers are escalating uh, at a great rate of knots. We have 1,120 YouTube followers now on the Space Nuts YouTube channel, which is uh, rather stylish. fantastic. It's sort yeah. of putting pressure on us to do a vlog or a video oh, or episode? Or well, we'll get round to it. Something like that. <laughs> um, I wouldn't want them to record what we're doing now, which we could do, but it would be, you know, at least at my end, fairly ugly, <laughs> especially this time of the day. But uh, thank you for following us on YouTube. Uh, you can do the same, youtube.com slash c for charlie slash Space Nuts should find us and uh, you sub- uh, simply subscribe and voila all done uh, now fred let's move on to some um uh, some cards and letters shall we i'm going to ruffle around yes. i'm going to ruffle around in my in the bag
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> let's see what i can find you hearing that i can't see it as well right. there's plenty of stuff in there there's plenty in there and our first note comes from steve in british columbia Hi, Fred and Andrew. My 8-inch backyard telescope is festooned with warnings against pointing it at the sun because of the concentrated solar energy that would result uh, or could easily destroy my eyesight. I have this question. Would it be possible, however improbable, that a catastrophic event within the Milky Way galaxy could emit enough energy to do the same thing. For instance, if I was observing a nearby white dwarf star with my telescope and it happened to undergo a Type 1a supernova while I was watching, would my eyesight be at risk? Thank you for your fine podcast. It's a a fine line podcast. I think that's more accurate. Uh, Steve from (laughs) British Columbia, uh, Columbia, and he says, P.S. Andrew, might consider naming the book The Tyrannian Trilemma. Um, interesting. Interesting, Steve. Uh, I haven't gone with that, but um, you you got it half right. <laughs> but um, we'll get to that got, later. He so it's got, got the. You got yeah, two it. words right, actually. <laughs> oh, that's it's good. The, it's the Tyrannian something. We'll, we'll tell you in a minute. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Well done. Um, yeah, well done, Steve. <laughs> yeah, interesting question. I, I suspect not because a, a Type 1a supernova, when we finally see it, would have happened a long time ago and I imagine the energy would have been dispersed rather rapidly and widely and by the time we... you know, If you just happened to be looking at one at the right moment uh, that its light hit Earth, would it, it, it couldn't be damaging, could it, or could it? Um, okay, put it this
0: way, Andrew... Remember that a type 1A supernova can outshine its entire host galaxy. Yes. So it's brighter than the rest of the galaxy. And if it's sitting in the galaxy and you're looking at it, yes, you're going to be blind. Wow. Um, because there will be so much energy in it. Uh, I, we, we, we've we seen, um, you know, the, 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 the most recent uh, naked eye supernova was actually... In the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is uh, one hundred and sixty five thousand light years away, if I remember rightly uh, and that was a, a bright it looked like a bright star but if you if you imagine that that was only a thousand light years away mm. um, and uh, that was actually not a, a, a what 's called a type one a supernova, which exactly as Steve says involves white dwarfs coming to the end of their lives uh, rather dramatically. Uh, But imagine that it was only a a couple of thousand light years away or something like that. Then you've got a a very high-intensity radiation. We'd also feel the neutrinos and things of that sort that would come from it. So it wouldn't just be your eyes that you'd have to worry about.
1: Um, But that sucks. uh, I mean, you are born a thousand years or however long after this thing, you know, did the dirty on itself and then and then you pay the price that's just it's that's just wrong
0: so <laughs> it's part of the deal yeah. <laughs> um, uh, just uh, to to you know to carry on from from that um the probably the most likely object to turn into a supernova in our galaxy at the moment is the star betelgeuse or betelgeuse oh, however yes, you want to pronounce it
1: that, we talked about we that did. a long long time ago and and everyone's sort of on standby for this aren't they well, that's right.
0: In fact, it's a bit more recent than that because in the last um, uh, few months, the last half year or so, it's it's dimmed to only 40% of its uh, brightness. Now, it is a variable star, uh, but it's also a very big and bloated object. If um, if it was where the sun is, Mars would be inside it. So it gives you an idea of how big it is. Uh, a red supergiant, but it is, um, it is actually... Uh, you know, it's at risk of exploding. Um, and go, Steve, there's that, something to keep your eye on. That's, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, we, I mean, it may be. Steve might have to wait a long time because we think it's sometime within the next uh, 100,000 years when it's mm-hmm. going to go off. Uh, but what I was going to say was people have calculated this, it's not a type 1a supernova, but it would be a uh, supernova. It's about 700 and 50 light years away is Betelgeuse. And the calculation is that it will be about as bright as a half moon. Wow! Um, So imagine the brilliance of a half moon but concentrated in a single point. It will be easily visible during the day. Um, and that would hurt your eyes to look at i don't think it would make you blind but it would certainly uh, it would certainly be a, a challenge to look at that through through an 8 inch telescope which is what steve was talking well, this about this is
1: why telescopes only let you look through one eye because if it does happen <laughs> so you still still the other one
0: <laughs> yeah except some people do it through binoculars only yes they do <laughs>
1: don't they yeah. okay yeah. so the answer is yes yeah and it's a great question it great would question. hurt it would hurt a lot, Maybe. Steve. Okay, thanks for your question and uh, thanks for getting in touch and thanks for the suggestion for the book title. Moving on, um, we've got a question from Frank uh, Miyika. I think that's how it's pronounced. Hi, Andrew Dunkley. I wonder why he's gone full name on me. I'm wondering, uh, you tell us about stars and planets, you talk about how they have gravity, but you've never taken a moment to tell us why and how they're able to have such a force. Uh, could you help me understand that, please? I'm watching this documentary about how a collision between Thea and something else led to the formation of the Earth and the Moon. How and why do they have gravity? Where did, it, uh, where did it come from, or where did they get it from? And you've always said the Moon is moving away from Earth. Does this mean the ocean tides are going to fade? P.S. I'm really wondering about this stuff. Please tell me about them, Frank Miyeka, yeah, he's full of wonder. Is Fred? It uh, is Frank. Uh, Fred and uh, I. I don't disagree with him. The, these are the um, sorts of mysteries that we like to discuss, but some of them are not easy to grasp. Gravity is one of those elements that we struggle with to a certain degree.
0: Well, you're right. Both, both you and uh, Frank are absolutely right, Andrew. That uh, we really, well, that's you first, know, even that's a first for both of us. <laughs> Even the well, it might not be a first for Frank, but it is Probably for you. <laughs> the, even the um, the the physicists struggle to know what causes gravity. Um, uh, Frank's question um, is, you know, how and why do they have gravity? Where did they get it from?
1: And the answer uh, and is the answer,
0: always from my childhood, because. Yep. It's because, that's right. Mm-hmm. But the because doesn't have any anything coming after it. So we've got, we understand the properties of gravity. We, we can see how gravity behaves. And that's, you know, the theory we have at the moment, which originated with Albert Einstein in, in 1915, the general theory of relativity, that perfectly describes the way gravity acts as a distortion of the space around uh, massive objects. And, in fact, it extends to the distortion of space around any object, you and I, to a very slight extent because we 're made of of matter, we distort the space around us, so we have gravity but it 's you know that at the level of of a human body it 's not something that we can really measure um, so we We could couch this in a different way. the astrophysicists. Uh, starting with Einstein, have shown us the way gravity behaves. And that collision between Tia and the the proto-Earth back in the very early days of the solar system that Frank mentions, uh, that clearly was dictated by the gravitational pull between them. Um, So, uh, as I said, the uh, the astronomy defines how gravity behaves. But what um, the physicists look for is a way of treating that in the subatomic world, because we know that there are that nature has these fundamental forces, uh, four of them, in fact, Um, the strong and weak nuclear forces, there are two separate forces that uh, interact between subatomic particles. And then there's the electromagnetic force, which is magnetism and light. And that's what actually makes um, chemical reactions happen, because it's all about electrons. And finally, there's the gravitational force. Now, that is the least understood of them. And it's also by far the weakest. It's billions and billions of times weaker than the others. Uh, and that perhaps is giving us a clue as to what it's all about. Um, maybe it's weak because it's, it leaks out into other universes or something like that. Um, but what I was going to say was the the um, particle physicists have got uh, very accurate and Workable, practical, and so far, you know, completely reliable theories about how these forces are transmitted by particles. So, the strong and weak nuclear forces uh, have particles. There's the gluon that that carries the new, the strong force. Uh, something called the W and Z bosons that carry the weak force. The photon carries the electromagnetic force. And so people would very much like to know about something they call the graviton, which is the, the particle that carries gravity. But at the moment, we have no theory, no quantum theory of gravity. And so gravitons are really still a figment of people's imagination. They're probably there, but we have no theory to understand them. And it's only when we get to that step will we be able to answer the questions that, uh, that Frank raises? Um, because he's right. We can understand it as a phenomenon, but we don't really know where it comes from. That's gravity.
1: Right. Yeah. So um, the, the answer, Frank, is, don't know. Yeah. <laughs> it, the, the, there's one bit
0: of Frank's question that we do know about. It's his last bit. You've always said the moon is moving away from the Earth. Does this means that the ocean tides are going to fade? Yes, it does, mm. uh, over next, a very very w- long periods. Next period week, by time. the
1: way. Next week, it'll happen. <laughs>
0: Don't, don't listen to him, Frank. He's raving. He's raving. It's actually the week after. It's um, it's it's measured in tens of billions of years, so it's not anything to worry about because the Earth will have been fried before then. But yes. as the as the Moon moves farther away, the Earth's rotation slows down. Eventually, the Earth and the Moon wind. Up facing one another the moon goes around once in i think it's 47 days uh, the earth goes around once in 47 days and so there are still tides but they're only coming from the sun rather than from the moon so they're only about a quarter as much as as what we have now
1: mm, fascinating thank you frank appreciate your question hope we adequately answered some of those questions <laughs> I, I think we did um now, uh, Fred, I, I, a big reveal. I guess we should do the big reveal. And thanks to everybody who pitched ideas for, for book titles, I got some um, some real rippers. Actually, if I if I do some hunting around, I, m- I might be able to um, find a couple. I should have thought about that before, but I didn't. Um, but uh, let's see. Um, I've got a few here that uh, people came up with. Uh, somebody, uh, yes. How about the the triple cross uh, that came from Peter Scott? Uh, Scott or triple jeopardy was an idea for uh, for the title. Uh, that sort of fits, but um, um, I, I wanted something a little bit more technical, I suppose. Uh, we've got um, the seventh son. Because there were seven fleets leaving seven worlds, so that was that was a thought uh, from um, Petrus, and we've I've got a whole bunch more. Um, uh, Hannah I think might have come up with an idea. Um, no, no, that was someone else. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm just ad hocing here. Uh, Brian has come up with oh, dozens of ideas: um, Exodus, Entanglement, Interstellar. Um, tripartite Pact, uh, a journey's end collision, uh, the Borsch, etc., etc. Uh, look, I'll put you out of your misery. Um, I, I, I I I read them all. I thought about them. I nutted out ideas. I started sort of doing some deep and meaningful homework on what I uh, what, what I wanted, and I came up with um, the Tyrannian Enigma. So cool. do
0: you like that? Ooh, I do like that, yeah.
1: Yeah, the Tyrannian Enigma. Which oh, could yeah. could mean a lot of things. Um so uh look, that's where we're at so far. I, uh, I I just uh today finished the uh the book the back cover blurb, you know, when you write the sort of yes. what's going on type of thing yeah. that, that's supposed to hook someone into wanting to read your book. Uh do you mind if I read it? No, no, go,
0: go for it, Andrew. Let's It'll hear it. It'll only
1: take me 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> when, when the Borsch invaded the seven worlds of the Andromeda galaxy, the people fought hard to defend their colonies, but they were confronted by a disciplined and unwavering foe. The Borsch proved overwhelming and without mercy, killing indiscriminately. Their goal, extermination and slavery." When it was realised that the war was lost, seven fleets were quickly launched to seven points in the universe, identified as having habitable worlds. Each fleet carried experimental jump-drive technology that would enable them to travel vast distances in a very short time. The reliability of the neutron-powered drive was in doubt, but there was no choice. They had to flee. The first Andromedan fleet, under the command of Admiral Kalu Vadan, left its home world with a select crew and many thousands of military personnel and civilians on a quest to settle on one of these new worlds in a place far away from the Borscht. During their final jump, a cataclysmic failure saw the fleet scattered with many ships lost. Only the Admiral's ship, the ISS Titania, arrived at the new world, severely damaged. The planet Terrania was beautiful, a watery blue ball with a single grey moon, warmed by a medium-sized yellow star sound familiar uh, but to the horror of the andromedans it was already occupied without anywhere to go now anywhere else to go they had to decide to either negotiate asylum or just take what they needed from the people of this world just like the Borscht had taken from them or would something else jeopardize their hopes for the future there it ooh is. yes Oh. So that's, that's where we're at, the Tyrannian <laughs> Enigma. Yeah. So have a think about that. I, um, I'm i just sort of finalising a few bits and pieces. I've got my brother getting ready to uh, do the final cover, and then it will all be uploaded, and uh, hopefully in the next month or so it will be published for your consumption. It won't be a big book. It's only a... Um, oh yeah. Bit over a hundred pages, which is a, is a short story in the scheme of things, but um, I, I I wanted it that way. I just want I don't want to get it complicated with too much mumbo jumbo. I just wanted to tell the story, so I kept it kept it tidy. I think was the way to, to describe it. So look out for that.
0: Well, well, mumbo jumbo? Is the stock in trade of space nuts, Andrew? I'm <laughs> surprised you you didn't uh, want to. Maybe I've used <laughs> it
1: all up on the podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Quite so.
1: But uh, nevertheless, uh, we will um, definitely... Uh Let you know when that's out, and it'll be on the uh, Space Nuts shop, which you can find at com slash Space Nuts. And there's another couple of books in there as well if you want to peruse them. Someone uh, the other day uh, messaged us on Facebook, uh, Fred, and said, you need to put the link for the Space Nuts shop on. So I did, and then he wrote back to me and said, I bought a (laughs) T-shirt. lovely. (laughs) Good on him. Yeah, so um, (laughs) that's where it is, com slash Space Nuts. Thanks again to everybody. I, I will give you a collective credit in the cover because everybody contributed and tried hard and I appreciate that uh, I think my failing was I, I, I probably should have told you that much before <laughs> but I hadn't written it at that point but uh, <laughs> nevertheless I, I appreciate the effort and I appreciate you uh, putting in a great effort too Fred mini moons and all
0: well, it's a pleasure. Um, I'm uh, the master of mumbo-jumbo, and I will continue to be so, I hope, on Space Nuts for many millennia to come.
1: <laughs> or minutes, whatever comes first. Or minutes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I don't care. <laughs> we'll catch you next time, Fred. Thank you. Sounds great. See you later. Bye. Uh, Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for listening. We'll catch you next week.
0: Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast.
1: Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from bytes.com.